Welcome to Book Choice right here on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. This is the only show on South African radio that offers you a whole hour of books, books, books. We've got reviews, we've got interviews, we've got so much to share with you. So here's a little taste of what we've got on today's show. Beryl Eichenberger's got two short reviews that'll just spice up your holiday reading. She's got one piece of fiction with The Lost Bookshop by Evie Woods, and she's also got a non-fiction title she's going to tell you about called My Big Fat Greek Taverna. Then we're joined by Rachel van der Feyfer, our resident YA young adult pro. She's going to be telling us about a book called Girl, Goddess, Queen by B. Fitzgerald. After that, and a little bit of music, Shirley Gueller is going to be chatting about the latest from award-winning literary fiction hero Sebastian Falks. His latest is called The Seventh Son. I've read this one. It's really good. After that, we've got another award-winning author. Bev chats about the latest from Tan Twang Eng, which is called The House of Doors. This novel is getting rave reviews. In fact, it's been on a ton of best of 2023 lists. After that, we turn to nature with John Hanks. He's going to be chatting about a field guide to Feinbos Fauna. And then, of course, because this is still fine music radio, we've got some fine music for you. After that, we move into the interview segment of our show. Melvin Minard joins us, and he's going to be interviewing Philip Van Zell, who's the editor of this year's Platter's South African Wine Guide for 2023. So that should be interesting, give you an idea of what kind of wines have been trending this year. And after that, Zapiro joins us. He's brought out his regular annual this year. This year for 2023, it's called Ram Apocalypse Now. And Philip Todras is going to be chatting to him about this annual. Then a bit more music. And we wrap up the show with a really interesting segment. B.T. Willoughby is a young poet. And she's just brought out a poetry collection through Caravan Press. And it's called So Comma. And we joined her at her launch at the Book Lounge, the iconic independent bookstore in Cape Town, where she was interviewed by her mum, who's South African renowned poet, author, and so much more. Her mum's name is Fanula Dowling. So in this incredible interview, Fanula interviews her daughter, Beatty, about this new poetry collection. So we'll wrap up the show with that and a bit more music. So let's get this show on the road. The year is hurtling towards an end, which means hopefully you've got that delicious week between Christmas and New Year's before you have to go back to work. You're done eating the turkey. You're done with the Christmas extravaganza. Maybe now you can settle down and enjoy a really good book. So you're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And we're bringing you a ton of fantastic reads, all sponsored by exclusive books, of course. So first up, as I mentioned, Beryl Eichenberg has got two short reviews for us. We call these Book Bites. These are great holiday reads. The first is a piece of fiction. It's called The Lost Bookshop. It's by Evie Woods. And then she's going to follow that up with a non-fiction book bite of a book called My Big Fat Greek Taverna by Costa Iotis. Welcome to the show, Beryl. Holidays wouldn't be holidays without books and browsing bookstores. I've chosen two books, a fiction and a non-fiction, Easy Holiday Reads, Perfect for that downtime in the sun. What if you saw an intriguing bookshop and when you looked again it was gone? 
Evie Woods crafts a delightfully relatable story in the lost bookshop. Laced with a bit of magic, she brings us a novel that ticks all the boxes for escapism, literary figures, the joy of bookshops, lost and found, and a touch of romance. But she realistically looks at the lives we lead today, our own personal stories, and the parallels with past lives. She reminds us that even if our story doesn't appear between the covers of a book, it's just as extraordinary. Woods brings us three characters in two different time frames, inextricably linked through the power of their passion for books and a lost bookshop, one that only seems to appear to those who are seeking their truth in literature. London of the 1920s and Opaline's love of books instilled by her father has given her the gift for spotting rare books. As a woman, she was expected to marry well to bolster the family fortune. Hardly. Escaping the stifling idea of an arranged marriage, she plunges into Paris, an exotic lover, the world of Shakespeare and company, and a bohemian society peopled by Hemingway and more, and a lost manuscript by Emily Bronte. Literature is her salve and her saviour, but her path will be long and complex in her patriarchal world. As when her malevolent brother finds her, she is judged and sentenced. Fast forward to Dublin in the present. Martha and Henry meet in unusual circumstances. Martha has left an abusive marriage and has found a job as housekeeper in Hayney Lane to the flamboyant ex-actress Madame Bowden, an astute observer of human nature, a rather benevolent witch, you might say, casting a few necessary spells. Martha has been cowed by her violent husband. Her intellect stifled. She's rarely read a book, but her gift is being able to read people. Then she meets Henry. Walking back and forth outside her basement window one morning, he's a rare book collector looking for a lost manuscript, and a bookshop owned by one Opaline Carlyle in Hapney Lane. Curiosity gets the better of Martha, and as her world expands and she and Henry forge a friendship, she sees a life so far beyond what she's known. Under the watchful eye of Madame Bowden, the magic begins. I sensed Irish mysticism in Wood's writing. Which brings this story to pulsing life. Its lightly written flow belies the serious subjects that Woods explores. She deals with issues that have relevance down the years: patriarchy and bullying, domestic abuse and addiction. But written with the confidence that whatever our story, there can be a positive outcome, if only we open our eyes to what is around us. Her research brings us unusual facts, which, when melded with her lively imagination, makes for an uplifting, spellbounding. And thoughtful read. There was a distinct aroma of lemons when I dived into my big fat Greek taverna by Costa Aeotis. Yes, I know it was pure imagination, but scenes of Greek food passed, of lashings of lemon juice drizzling from a fistful of loosely tied rosemary brushed lovingly on a spit roasted lamb by a beloved Greek friend came to mind. I was hooked. With lemons a mainstay in so many cuisines, there are few fruits that are as versatile. Or always find a place in my cooking repertoire. This is a fun read, but beneath it all is the passion, insight, and daring that many people would dismiss as crazy, and few people would dare to follow. Costa is a foodie, an astute businessman, courageous, outspoken, ebullient, and notoriously Greek. He writes with a rare honesty about his crazy dream, opening a Greek taverna in Hart Bay, and the roller coaster ride of achieving that. From the late 80s, Egyptian-born Greek South African Costa had been a lawyer, then a diplomat at the UN, living the good life in Manhattan, but champing at his bit as he swallowed Greek-style retorts 
about some of the more questionable actions of the then nationalist government. His respite came with his visits to Uncle George's Taverna in Queens. Here he stepped back into his Greek world, and all those experiences were adding to his need to be back in South Africa and cook up the idea that was simmering. So it was that in the late 1990s, the sleepy fishing village of Hart Bay was shaken up by a Greek whirlwind in the shape of Costa, his wife Christine, and friends and business partners Herman and Almery. After a few hiccups, they found a rundown pub and opened a taverna called Lemonia. Many foodies of a certain vintage will remember it fondly for its traditional food, huge helpings. Some Germans were askance at the size and rather insulted. Mostly impeccable service and the big-hearted host Costa. And of course, the lemon trees at the entrance and the aroma of roasting lamb wafting across the courtyard. There is a humbleness about this book as Costa recounts this massive adventure. Self-deprecating, laugh-out-loud funny. I mean, who uses the cold room as a fortified panic room? It is an honest reflection on something he simply had to do. From staffing, community involvement, customer comments, psychology, human nature and sumptuous Greek dishes and ambiance, he unpacks the life of a restaurateur in the early millennium. His narrative flows. He speaks about his previous careers, lessons learnt, taken on board or discarded, and says, I couldn't have written about these experiences 25 years ago. Like a good Stefano stew, this story needed to marinate and cook slowly. Well, it certainly has a fine taste and flavour, and I'll bet you'll be lus for a Greek meal when you're not even halfway through. I'm heading for my local Greek as we speak. The Lost Bookshop by Evie Woods, published by Harper Collins. My Big Fat Greek Taverna by Costa Iotis, published by Melinda Ferguson Books. Thank you so much, Beryl. Two great recommendations there. Now we're joined by Rachel van der Feyfer. As I mentioned, Rachel's, uh, well, she's actually going into grade 10 now, next year. And Rachel is our resident young adult novel reviewer. So today, Rachel's here to tell us about a book called Girl, Goddess, Queen, which is by B. Fitzgerald. This sounds fantastic. What did you think of it, Rachel? Girl, Goddess, Queen is the debut novel of author Bea Fitzgerald, whom you may recognize from the Greek mythology-inspired skits that she posts on social media. It's a retelling of the myth of Persephone and Hades with a twist. Persephone isn't dragged into the underworld, she jumps. Determined to escape the marriage her parents are forcing her into, she takes the only escape she has, even if that means dealing with the underworld and its incredibly annoying ruler Hades. I've read a lot of mythology-inspired stories and retellings, and this book is definitely one of the best I've read recently. My only criticism would be that the author made changes to early creation myths that weren't really explained very well, which did create some confusion for me, and I think it would have been interesting to have had this explored in more detail, as it is quite significant to the backstories of the characters. Other than that, though, I really enjoyed reading it, and it was absolutely hilarious at times, while still managing to explore some more serious topics. As a reminder, the book is Girl Goddess Queen by Bea Fitzgerald, and is published by Penguin Books.
great classic on book choice. It's Take Five, music of Paul Desmond. Rework there by our very own saxophonist, Debbie. Thank you for the music, Mzu. And next up, we turn to some really great literary fiction. These are award-winning authors. Shirley Guler is up first with a novel by Sebastian Falks called The Seventh Son. This is a very interesting novel, and I expect to see this one on awards lists in the new year. What did you think of it, Shirley? I really enjoyed it. I found it quite science-y, um, but I still I enjoyed the plot. It was really interesting. Fascinating, terrifying, informative, and very well written. Sebastian Folks has taken ethics into another realm as he plays with DNA and the two AIs, artificial insemination and, of course, artificial intelligence. It would be a spoiler to tell you how, but it's enough to say he explores the boundaries of combining past and present in a frightening way, making one wonder who to trust and how far. Talissa is a mid-twenties broke scientific researcher from the U.S., who travels to the UK to meet Mary and Aidan. One is willing to sell her womb to enable her to self-fund a research position to advance her career. The others, an older sports club chef and cancer survivor and her schoolteacher husband, now desperate to have a child. Seth is the result, a sort of loner and in a way a misfit, not quite the same as his contemporaries, simply the victim of an innovative, though not always scrupulous, entrepreneur. With a clause in the contract between them all and the illustrious Pan Foundation, which forbids contact for 12 years, they only meet up those dozen years later and sort of connect. But Tulissa sees herself only as a landlady, one who simply rented out a womb room so she is somewhat ambivalent. It's impossible to say what the crux of the novel is without ruining it all. So let's just say the experiment is to understand the conscious mind by taking risks and an unethical stance backed by all the money in the world should things go wrong. The questions it raises are numerous. It's set in the not-so-distant future, beginning in 2030, when the happenings of the 2020s like COVID, Lionel Messi, romantic movies and meat are history, and it goes through to 2056. It's now a time when first-year university courses are taught by AI. Invasion of privacy, despite some draconian privacy laws, is paramount. Printed paper maps for navigation are curiously and fascinatingly anachronistic. It takes two hours to fly from New York's Obama Terminal to London, and one can travel from Boston to New York in an underground loop at 550 miles an hour, preceded in your canister by weight predetermined, when your metrics were read and your bag was scanned on entry to the terminal. One thing that made me happy that I might not be around in 2056 is the choice of film on the journey, animated ones only. While Talissa is something of a lost soul herself, it's Seth who made me hover between empathy and irritation, wanting to be more than he was able to be, knowing that he was also at a loss. He was helpless in a time when, when he was persecuted and hounded by the media as they got wind of something. It's all a bit iffy. So Seth and Talissa become bound together, moving towards an inescapable conclusion. The Seventh Son is not really like any other folks novel I've read, but that means nothing. Folks is a great storyteller, even though there are times when the story is as bleak as the isolated Scottish landscape at the end. Sometimes it's quite academic, possibly a little too much, but the paleontological aspects bound with the AI times two was for me compelling. What will happen, though, he asks, to the seven billion people who will lose their jobs thanks to AI? But, of course, such questions are all window-dressing, attractive or unattractive as that may be, while he settles on the main focus, and that is, 
is producing an ancestor today merited in the name of science, research, discovery, innovation, or even disruption? Is it legal, moral, ethical? Did, in fact, the two species really coexist 30,000 years ago? So is it far-fetched? See what you think. Thank you, Shirley. And now Beverly Rose Muller takes us into a review of another very awarded literary author, Tan Tuang Eng. And his new novel is called The House of Doors. I have seen huge, fantastic reviews of this novel. I haven't read it yet, but I am a fan of Tan Tuan Eng. I've also, as I mentioned, seen this book on so many best of 2023 reads. So it sounds like a good one. What did you think of it, Beverly? Somerset Maugham's short stories of flawed people and their dirty little secrets were often set in far-flung corners of the world, for the author was a great traveller. He was a household name when I was young, though fame, like everything else, tends to melt like a wax candle after burning brightly for a certain time, yet many of his works are still in print. The accomplished Malaysian novelist Tan Tuan Eng, call me Tuan, he once told me, has created his most recent novel, The House of Doors, based on the roving life of Maum and the hypocritical expat society he so charmed and mined for his stories. His most celebrated book, The Garden of the Evening Mists, is an exquisite and painful reflection of his homeland, a feat that shortlisted him for the Booker Prize in 2012. Slightly surprisingly, this latest novel opens in Durrenfontein in South Africa, though perhaps not that surprising if you know that the author first came to this country for graduate studies in law and has retained a close and personal affection for us ever since. I always wanted to write, he said to me about a decade ago, but his parents thought he should choose a profession, so he picked law came to South Africa 10 years ago to study at UCT and fell in love with being here and with his partner. In the House of Doors, Leslie and Robert are an uneasily married couple living in Penang in 1921, not unlike the many colonial functionaries and misfits around them. Robert has, since his youth, known the novelist W. Somerset Maugham, Willie as he was known to friends, and invites him and his secretary and lover, the naughty and unrepentant Gerald, to stay with him for a fortnight. This is a conservative society in which the orthodox way of doing things, no matter how hypocritical, is the norm. It's also a fruitful world for Willie to write about as he picks up and plunders their naughty ways, glossed over in public but gossiped about to him in private. For Willie had a clever way of operating, which was to include in his intimate conversations just enough compromising information about himself as to invite similar confidences from his listeners. Leslie has a friend who is in an unhappy marriage and who has taken a lover who is then shot. This reflects one of Maugham's most famous stories, Rain. Leslie has some secrets of her own, though. Her husband, she has realized, is gay and has a lover. She, too, roams outside her marriage, but strays even further into the forbidden world of local people, customs, and politics. The House of Doors is a reference to the decorated doors of the local population, some painted as beautifully as works of art and which Leslie's friend has collected and hung as she enters his forbidden world of sensual pleasure. Maugham moves on and publishes his stories that save him from bankruptcy. Leslie and Robert stay together, but they need to move, for he is suffering from respiratory problems, which is how 
the book both begins and ends in the Karoo, where the air there is supposed to be good for him. The book is charming, easily readable, and, as would be expected, very well written. It sometimes felt a little stilted. The character of Maum is better observed than that of Leslie. It is complicated to write a book about real characters, real events in novel form, especially if the reader is old enough, as I am, to recall the originals. But every book by Tan Tuan Eng is a treat, and this is no exception. The House of Doors by Tan Tuan Eng was long listed for this year's Booker Prize. Thank you so much, Bev. And now we move to a nature segment. John Hanks is here as always, and he'll be reviewing A Field Guide to Fanbos Fauna, by Cliff and Saritha Dawes. I really do enjoy these nature segments. Over to you, John. There is no doubt that Southern Africa has some of the best field guides on biological diversity to be found anywhere in the world, and I believe they are getting better and better. The latest field guide I've had the opportunity to review is entitled Field Guide to Feinbos Fauna, a superbly illustrated introduction to the 420 species in four animal groups, namely mammals, birds, reptiles, and frogs that occur in South Africa's Feinbos biome. And there is a chapter on each group. This part of South Africa also has one of the richest florals in the world, with over 9,000 plant species, more than two-thirds of which are endemic. In short, the whole of this biome is an absolute treasure house of diversity and endemism, summarized with obvious passion and enthusiasm in the 15-page introduction to the field guide, by the authors Cliff and Sarita Doss. Conservation biologists with a deserved reputation for all they have done and continue to do for the conservation of this remarkable part of Africa. Comprehensive introduction calls attention to the ways in which the animal communities influence the plant communities and highlights the main threats to the species that occur there, noting that the biological significance of this biome is indisputable. Each of the four chapters starts with an overview of local species diversity, including life history and viewing guidelines, with all the species accounts having key identification features, full colour photographs and distribution maps. Now, this is a remarkable achievement by any standards, which the authors have called attention in the acknowledgements, where they refer to the overwhelming generosity of people who were willing to contribute images noting that many of these are extremely rarely encountered animals and the book could be much poorer without them. Where this field guide is particularly good is the way in which each chapter introduces the reader on tips for field identification, giving prominence to the more cryptic species. The section on identifying reptiles is excellent, with a valuable note that photography also allows one to get detailed information without having to catch and handle the animal advice which I'm sure will be welcomed by those with a fear of snakes. The boomslang is one to avoid handling, and the text calls attention to the fact that just small quantities of the extremely potent hemotoxic venom can prove fatal without immediate medical assistance. With a dedication over many years by Cliff and Sarita Dawes to the conservation of species in the famed boss biome, they write with authority and conviction on what action to be taken to address threats to species of conservation's concern, listing these species at the start of each chapter. The attractive and docile riverine rabbit is today sadly critically endangered, 
owing to habitat transformation linked to agricultural activities, and this is likely to increase in the years to come. The attractive table mountain ghost frog is another species threatened with extinction because of human impact on their breeding streams. Regrettably, our own species has almost insatiable demands for land, for settlement and food production, and we must expect more of the famous biome, famous fauna, to move into this most endangered category. The superb illustrations in this book will not fail to make many more people aware of the spectacular diversity of this remarkable biome. And in so doing, I sincerely hope that this will encourage others to look for innovative options to promote conservation of threatened species. The title again, Field Guides to Famboss Fauna, is written by Cliff and Sarita Dawes, published by Straight Nature in Cape Town, and you can get a copy for 350 rand. It's a vibrant take of Crazy by the Basket Soto String Ensemble on Fire Music Radio 101.3 FM. Fascinating book reviews coupled with lovely music here on Book Choice. More please, Paige. Thanks again, Mzu. Welcome back to Book Choice on Fire Music Radio with me, your host, Paige Nick. And this show is, as always, sponsored by exclusive books. Next up, we've got a very interesting interview. Melvin Minot joins us and he's chatting to Philip Fancel who is the editor of the Platters South African Wine Guide 2023. Now, of course, the Platters Wine Guide has become a household name in South Africa as just detailing the very best of wine for the year, what's been trending, what people are drinking. So over to you, Melvin, and welcome to the show, Philip. It's known as Platter Among Us Wine Lovers. Officially the latest, the 44th edition, is also the 2024th South African Wine Guide officially. And the person in charge and running this massive operation is Philip Van Sale, editor and publisher. Welcome, Philip. Thank you. 
give us a wrap of the reach of the project. How many wineries, wines, people involved? It's a massive operation. It is. We have a database of around 900. In fact, it's slightly more than that. It's closer to 1,000 wineries that we send an invitation to uh, at the beginning of the year. And it's on, on an opt-in basis. And we say if you'd like to be featured in the new edition, um, you need to, first of all, send us tasting samples and then also an update on the, your winery profile, basically, your contact details, uh, you know, the extent of the, of the vineyards, phone number, you know, those sorts of me- mechanical things. And then the, the wineries we opt in, which are substantial number, send us the, the, the wine in around about June and we sort them. USP, the unique thing about platters is that we, um, we don't just taste wines randomly. We taste the a, a wine, like for example a Cabernet Sauvignon, and then we will taste the 2000 vintage, and then the next edition, the next year, we want to taste the next vintage. So we, we build up a track record of the of the wine over time. So we make sure that the, the right wine and the right vintage is received, and then we send that the, the wines to our tasters who taste the wines at home. Uh, the wines arrive with a, um, a fairly substantial information sheet because we want to understand what the the intention of the winemaker is amongst other things so it's not just a quality rating it's also trying to understand where was the wine made what was the intention behind it is it a a quaffing wine a poolside wine or is it something a fine wine that's intended to mature for a decade or or more so the tasters would then uh, receive their wines and they would taste the wines we have an an intranet which is linked to our database the intranet runs on a on a browser and the, the tasters would then log their tasting notes and their ratings. And then um, once, once that's done, I start editing. And um, after a, a good few months, we uh, press a button and out pops a, a manuscript, which we, <laughs> uh, which we upload to our, to our printers. And uh, you know, a month later, the, the book comes out. I hope I make it sound simple. <laughs> Sounds simple, but I know it's not simple. I know there's a lot of people who look forward to this. Obviously, it makes great Christmas gift for those of us who, you know, are interested. Uh, I want to take up a one interesting point that you just made. Uh, I personally brag with the fact that I have every single edition since the first one. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but what struck people like me is, of course, it's really a history of South African wine in many ways. You know, it's like yeah. a record of South African wine. Uh, and your point about consistency is very yeah. relevant in that aspect. Yeah, I think it was the USP right from the start, because when John and Erica Platter started to publish the first edition in 1980, it, it was already there. It was kind of fully fledged. We haven't changed that that approach, which which says that the wine producers work hard to, to establish themselves and to establish a reputation in the marketplace. And um, we kind of keep track of that. And we, we try to understand what makes that happen, what makes it so. So we'll taste the new vintage when it arrives in and of itself and for itself and judge it on, on that basis. But when it comes to writing the, the, the tasting note, we have this track record that's running in the background, which says that, you know, the track record over t- at least two vintages of this wine is, let's say, for example, four, four and a half stars. So it's a, it's a superior wine. And then we kind of, if the, if the vintage that we're rating is better or the same or, or not, the, not as good, we mix that into the tasting note, either directly by giving the actual rating that published last year, or you kind of mix it into the, the wording of, of the tasting note to say that it's different for this reason. Um, but I think it's important uh, not to have a, you know, a, a kind of random approach for, for this project because it is a guide and it's not a competition. You know, a competition is fine. You want the best wine on the day, no questions asked, but this is a different exercise. But I think that's what sets the platter aside from all these other competitions for, mm. you know, I mean, to me, a lot of these competitions are simply about these anonymous ratings and obviously large 
amounts of money to enter these competitions and good luck with the gold and silver that mm. they get and so on. But the platter is a consistency. In fact, the wines are then measured against its own sort of you know, standards and what it sets itself in a kind of way. Yeah. So, so we do, we do have a blind component, which is the, the five star tasting, which happens at, at the end. We internally, we score on a hundred point scale and the, the wines that are, um, 93 and above automatically get entered into the, the second round, which is this blind tasting. We, we discuss it every year and should it be sighted, should it be blind? And we've always come to the conclusion that it needs to be a blind tasting because what you want to do at that stage, so the taster will have the whole flight of, say, Pinot Noir, all of the Pinot Noirs of 93 and above. It's a unique opportunity, actually. I don't think it ever happens elsewhere in the industry where you have a complete overview of a category, Cabernet Sauvignon or Pinot Noir. You've got as much time as you, as you need to really degrade those wines and make sure that you come up with the five stars. So there is that blind element, and I think it, the fact that it's blind just helps focus on the quality rather than, you know, kind of mind games and, and you know, whose wine is this and uh, that kind of thing. So you focus on the quality and also the fact that you've got the spread of wines, which is, which is a unique thing. How wide is the reach of the platter, do you think, both in terms of people who read it and buy it and uh, in the wine industry itself? I think it's, it's, it has always been highly rated. I, I know, you know, from, from uh, overseas travel as well that, that people who know about or heard about South African wine know, know about platters and they have kind of know it by reputation. Um, we do sell quite a number. In fact, over the past few years, we've sold more than ever hard copies overseas and obviously we have an app and a, and a, and a web-based version of the of the book and also an e-book so it does have an international footprint for sure well philip best of luck and thanks for coming in all of us are looking forward to seeing scores in the book the new book thanks a lot well thank you <laughs> I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue and clouds of white, the bright blessed day. And the dark secret night And I think to myself What a wonderful world Oh yes it is Well the colors of the rainbow So pretty in the sky Are also under faces of people Going by, I see friends shaking hands, saying, How do you do? They really say, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. They then much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. 
an all-time favorite of mine, it's What a Wonderful World. It was first recorded by the great Louis Armstrong. And here we heard it from Prince Lengosa. Thanks again, Mzu, and welcome back to the show. You're tuned into Book Choice on Fine Music Radio, and this show is sponsored by Exclusive Books. If you missed any of the authors or any of the names of any of the books in the show, or maybe you missed the show altogether and you tuned in late, well, we load this show as a podcast on fmr.co.za right after the show, so you can go and listen to it there. We have another great interview now. Uh, we tend to do this interview once a year around about this time of year because Zapiro brings out his annual annual. <laughs> so basically he compiles uh, some cartoons and he pulls it all together. And this year's annual annual is called Ram Apocalypse Now. So Philip Todras joins us in the studio with Zapiro to chat about What's happening in news and comics? Welcome to the show, you guys. I have with me the man himself, Jonathan Shapiro, otherwise known as Zapiro. And it's an annual event when the two of us get together to talk about his latest annual, this one called Rama Apocalypse Now. Let me repeat that. (laughs) Rama Apocalypse Now. Quite a mouthful because it's been quite a mouthful of a year, I would imagine, Jonathan. It has. It's funny. It trips off my tongue. Uh, I've noticed that other people have a harder time saying uh, Rama Apocalypse Now. It's something that came to me during the production of the cartoon that it came from in the book because I would say probably by far the biggest theme is is ESCOM and the stuff ups around ESCOM and the blackouts and the euphemisms and the outages and the new ministry and the and all of those things and then probably the second biggest theme is well Cyril as a president as a, the most reluctant president we've ever had and his kowtowing to Putin, his, you know, sucking up to Russia and China, the BRICS summit, the, the idea that he was going to give Putin immunity if he came here. And then Putin eventually, you know, the, the sort of karma heads prevailed and they, they, they realized that it would be a seriously embarrassing. So I came up with a cartoon that was about, it was a parody of Apocalypse Now. And Putin was that sort of bare chested gung ho guy from the movie. And he was, as he was about to come to the BRICS and get immunity, he's saying, I love the smell of immunity in the morning, based on the, the fame. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And then I thought, actually, that backdrop is not just apocalypse now, it's rum apocalypse now, and everything burning behind. And that became the cover of the book as well. Well, the only word I would have any reluctance about is the word the reluctant president, because I think <laughs> there are other qualities about him which makes him a focus of some of most of what's been happening this year but yes but i mean you think about my my use of the word reluctant and that that image of him he's not exactly looking happy on the cover you know putin looks very full of himself and happy about everything as putin is one of those kind of egomaniacs but cyril he's reluctant to govern he's reluctant to take on the anc factions he's reluctant to get a backbone he's reluctant to disclose things for someone who's as talented and as intelligent as Sir Ramaphosa, and who had such a great start all those years ago in many different respects as a, as a lawyer and as a trade unionist and as a, somebody who helped deliver the Constitution. Uh, and A really, really interesting and intelligent person with integrity, I thought. He's shown himself to be quite pathetic, and that's why I call him a reluctant president. Or spineless is the word you yes, use. Yes, spineless as well. As well. Yeah. But now, let's get into this whole thing about cartoons, because the one thing I, we always talk about is being funny is not funny. Yeah. And you are taking on very serious issues yes. and making us laugh to be able to 
agree to find where we are perhaps or how would you define it? So my take on it is that my starting point is I want to communicate things that I believe and that I'm, I'm actually not necessarily looking for humor. It's a slightly different take on what you said. I promote my sort of advocacy. I, I, I believe as a cartoonist, I'm not just there to kind of make little quips and jokes. I'm trying to actually have opinions and perhaps shift people's thinking. And I'm always looking for something that is surprising to help you to think about it in a different way. And humor is the kind of technique or the tool that is probably the sharpest and the best for that surprise. But it could simply be outrage or anger. It could be sadness or it could be something that just makes you think. But it's that surprise and the little shift in perception. That's what I'm looking for. You know, every now and then a belly laugh comes with that. Well, it's something that Mike van Kran certainly picks up on in My Fellow South Africans. And I think you might want to address that because I think it's the first time that you've moved into the world of theatre as well. Actually not. Um, Mike has, I think, is probably the third or fourth production where he's used my cartoons as a backdrop uh, for his kind of satire, um, his very incisive satire. It was many, many years ago, uh, before he was as well known uh, as he is now, that he he first came to me and said, uh, because we knew each other from sort of struggle days, from the 80s, and he said, you know, I'd like to use the cartoons as a little bit of a backdrop. And he did that in, I think, two or three productions, but many years ago. And then this recent one now is getting quite a lot of attention again. Well, and he's certainly been winning awards himself, which I'm very pleased to see. So that's Mike McCrown using it. But I think we might have even spoken about this. It's something that I think would be very useful in history books. I'm happy to say that is something that's been happening for a long while. That uh, I think it's probably one of the most gratifying things for me as a cartoonist that uh, not only do young people come up to me now and say, oh, I've, I've just had to do a cartoon of yours in an exam. So that they are getting the, the cartoons to try and analyze in English, in history and uh, um, economics and all sorts of things, art and different languages. I love that. And that's been happening for decades now. But they actually are also, the cartoons themselves are actually being used in these, um, in history books and books at various you know, universities and schools. To get the joke, you've got to understand where it fits into the history. Yeah. So we need you around and we want more of you and we look forward already to your next <laughs> year when you'll be looking at lots of very serious issues again and trying to, to make us understand them in a better, different and certainly various perspectives, not just what's often just churned out there. So, we've been very fortunate to be speaking to Jonathan Shapiro, also Zapiro, about, let me, I'm going to make you pronounce it properly. Apocalypse Now. There you go, Apocalypse <laughs> Now. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Philip.
Tell me cuando, cuando, cuando We can share a love divine Please don't make me wait again When will you say yes to me? A stunning rearrangement of Quando 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 on guitar by local guitarist Nosa Vida. Thanks again, Mzu, our music guru, and thank you for compiling all the tracks that you've heard in today's show. Mzu does a great job. Mzu, we also have to thank you for building this show every month. You do such an amazing job, and we so love working with you. And last up on the show, before we wrap for the year, we have one more very exciting interview to share with you. B.T. Willoughby is an incredibly talented writer, and she's just brought out her debut poetry collection, which was published by Karina Brink at Caravan Press. We were lucky enough to join them at the launch of this collection, which was held at the Book Lounge in Cape Town, and we got to record their interview. So we're thrilled to be able to share an excerpt of that interview with you here today. What makes this interview even more special is that BT was interviewed at her launch by her mom, Fanula Dowling. You may recognize that name. Fanula is one of South Africa's most loved literary authors. She's also a poet. But let me hand over to Karina Brink of Caravan Press at the Book Lounge to do some further introductions to the sparkling new talent and this wonderful new collection. Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Karina, and I'm the, a very proud publisher at Caravan Press, and I have the honor to introduce these two amazing women tonight. And usually one starts with the author whose book is being launched, but I would like to do it a little bit differently today, and I would like to um, introduce the interviewer first. For anybody who does not know Finula Dowling, you, your life is pointless. <laughs> So if you, if, you, if you don't know her yet, you must please search the bookshelves of this incredible place and take at least five of her books home with you. Um, you will not regret it. She's one of the finest writers that this country has produced and she has done one more incredible thing beyond her writing life. Many, many more incredible things, but the, the one that we are going to speak about tonight is that with the playwright Gael Willoughby, she had an incredible daughter. 
And this daughter is stepping into her own limelight tonight by presenting us with her first debut um, collection of poetry. And I think it's going to be one of many because she is going to be as bright as the parents who gave her life, if not brighter. So welcome to the two of you. It's almost impossible to follow that introduction. Darling. <laughs> a poet is, is a poet because of their voice. And it's probably not something the poet thinks about very much. It's just taken for granted. So let me tell you that you have a very distinctive voice, particularly for somebody so young. And it's, it's witty and it's pithy. I mean, we just have to pause and think about this title. A two-letter word with a comma, a very suggestive comma. So um, some influence there, perhaps, of your advertising background, be succinct as possible, but not just witty and pithy, also um, outspoken, outspokenly feminist, wise and and very loving um so i want you to reflect perhaps a little on where that voice might have come from where your early influences were um so i think growing up where well, you were there um, <laughs> you know i grew up with sitting next to a poet i'm very lucky in that i had a kind of training where i sat next to you while you read or wrote um, I watched the Jane Austen <laughs> movies. Um, I went to a dress up at age nine as Mr. Rochester, <laughs> and no one else knew who I was. <laughs> Everyone was dressed as Pocahontas. Um, and then I had a, an auntie sitting in the front who taught me drama, one on one lessons, um, to help me with my accents. Um, and then definitely my job has uh, contributed a lot to the way I write um, because I've just been taught that you've got to say it straight, you've got to, you've got to hook the, the reader, you've got to get your point and then you've got to get out. So that's, I suppose, also been an influence. Um, your father and, and grandmother? Yes. Uh, my grandmother, of course, don't be dull. <laughs> and she would cut you off even at age eight when you were telling a story about something that you thought was very interesting. She said, no, enough of that, blah, darling. <laughs> so I just had a very theatrical upbringing. I was brought up to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I hope that I am. <laughs> and, and to have a, a sense of, of audience, and, and which is what you've got now, and I wonder if you could just share with the audience two poems that illustrate a little bit about those early influences. Um, I will be your mother, which is on page 23. When I am your mother, I promise to be my mother and cut up apples and read you stories and write your essays. When I am your mother, I promise to be strong and love myself so I can love you and fight for myself so I can fight for you. When I am your mother, I promise to let you wear tutus to buy groceries and let you sleep beside me and let you sleep beside me for as long as you need to. When I am your mother, I promise to buy you vodka spritzers on your 16th and say hilarious things so you say hilarious things and question you so you question the world. When I am your mother, I will be my mother. I will be my grandmother. That 
I promise. My thanks to Karina Brink of Caravan Press. We also thank BT Willoughby and Fanula Darling. And we have to thank the Book Lounge for letting us record this interview of their wonderful launch. And so that brings us to the end of our final show for 2023. Can you even believe it? We look forward to joining you again next year with more reviews, more interviews, more wonderful books, more wonderful publishers. Thank you so much for joining us every month this year to listen and to talk with us about books and join us in our journey to find that perfect read. So until next year, thank you for joining us. Thank you to Exclusive Books for the sponsorship and happy reading. Yeah.